Hey everyone, we're your hosts, Parth and Chinmay, and welcome back to Biocast. Today, we're going to be talking about nutrition and public health with our special guest, Dr. Penny Gordon Larson, UNC's very own Vice Chancellor of Research and Distinguished Professor at the Gilling School of Public Health. First of all, uh, Dr. Gordon Larson, we know it's been a few months, but congratulations on being appointed the, uh, to the role of Vice Chancellor for Research at UNC. Um, it's a huge honor to be speaking with you. And as avid researchers ourselves on campus, we look forward to how you manage the research aspects of UNC in R1 school. Thanks, it's great to talk to you. Great to meet you both. Yeah, so just to kick things off, uh, tell us and the viewers a little bit about your journey into research and eventually into an administrative role at UNC. How have your responsibilities and involvement with these different sides changed over time? And what do they look like now? So I'm a human biologist by training. And, um, and so what that means is that I combine biology, behavior, and environment. And in my case, I study obesity. And so that's an area of science that's very interdisciplinary and very complex. Obesity is just an incredibly complex metabolic disease that has tons of different causes and um, you know, very multifactorial. And so that kind of research has led me to think about interdisciplinarity in a number of different frames. And it has allowed me over time as a researcher at UNC to collaborate with faculty members from across campus, from departments as diverse as genetics, biology, sociology, city and regional planning, you know, just on and on. And so that has given me a window into research across campus and um, and also research across the Gilling School of Global Public Health, which is where my home school is. And, um, and so I initially became interested in research leadership through my department as associate chair of research in the department, then associate um, dean for research at the school, and then um, the vice chancellor for research. And so in each of those cases, I used my experience building teams, diverse teams of interdisciplinary researchers to address a complex problem. So obesity, I used that same kind of perspective across the department, then the school and then the university to really do the same thing. Think about what the big challenge is, pull diverse teams together and figure out how to make the best methods and the best combinations of researchers to tackle that problem. So that's really what I do in my job now as the VCR. Yeah, gotcha, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, speaking a little bit about these challenges, um, like research has its ups and downs with downs being especially harsh on an individual. What are some of the most major roadblocks you've experienced on your research journey? And what are some tips and tricks you have for young researchers such as ourselves um, who experience many roadblocks and difficulties? So I think there's always roadblocks because, you know, that's the nature of science. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're always going to be trying to figure things out. You know, you get, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And, um, and, and I think as a researcher, you have to get comfortable with that. And in my case with obesity, obesity is so complex that, you know, there's, it's always hard to identify the exact mechanisms and pathways, you know, for the entirety of obesity. 
And so that's always going to be a challenge. And when you're comfortable with that challenge, you can continue to dig and continue to look and continue to try to find new ways of addressing the problem. And so I think that it's better to sort of accept the, you know, the fact that there will be roadblocks rather than to see them as roadblocks. So, you know, that's part of the journey. You you learn more by the things that slow you down. And the more that you are driven to identify a new method or a new approach to tackle that problem, the more innovative the science will be. And so I think that's actually one of the more exciting parts. I don't think of that as a challenge. I mean, I think of it as an exciting challenge rather than a, um, you know, like the, the downs on that. I, I think in terms of also um, other setbacks that a lot of people have are, um, you know, not getting grants funded or being, you know, having a paper turned down by a journal. And I think that's kind of the same perspective you want to have, um, you know, seeing the that as feedback and trying to improve the work and really take a deep look at what you were proposing or what you submitted and try to make the changes that the experts tell you. And the more open your mind is to that, the more likely you will eventually succeed. So I've had a lot of grants that have been rejected, not funded. And in every case, I've just taken that feedback and tried to submit it again until, you know, and make the changes until it was acceptable or funded. So. I think that kind of open mind and not getting too um, beaten up about it is is important because it's it's all feedback and it's all really designed to improve the science. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess transfer, uh, transferring more to like the the research side of it. So given given your extensive research on obesity and cardiovascular health in general. What do you believe are the most critical factors in contributing to the current like, rising rates of obesity, especially among you know young populations? So I think there's nothing more exciting in the obesity field right now than the nutrient-stimulated hormone therapies. I just think it's <laughs> like we're living in a time that we haven't really been in before with the, you know, these new drugs. And, um, and all of the drugs, I mean, forever, any of the drugs that we've had that are anti-obesity medications have always needed to be um, in combination with behavioral and lifestyle changes. And it's important also to have the environments that support the kinds of behaviors that are more associated with weight maintenance and weight loss. And so I think you have to think about them all together as a package. And, um, and so, you know, diet and lifestyle are clearly important, but you can't just do diet and lifestyle. When you, um, you know, there's obesity medicine specialists who have uh, special, um, they're called diplomats from the American Board of Obesity Medicine. When you have that kind of training, when a patient comes into a clinic, they it's a comprehensive approach so you ask people how they're sleeping you ask them what their stress level is you ask them how hard it is in their environment to get uh, healthy food how hard it is to exercise and then you work with them to try to identify how to overcome those challenges in um, in making the healthy lifestyle choices that 
one would want to make to um, to encourage weight maintenance or weight loss. So I think you know really it's it's such a comprehensive lifestyle issue and environmental issue that it's hard to point to specific single factors. And the new drugs are a very important tool in that toolkit to be able to to tackle um, you know to tackle some of these issues. It's um, you know obesity is just a really complex um, disease, like I said. And for young people, the earlier the intervention, the better, because when you gain weight, it's harder to lose weight. Your body has a you know a, a certain weight that it wants to defend. And as you gain weight, it's just all the more harder to lose it. And so the earlier you can get people on uh, a, some sort of weight maintenance or weight loss, the better. And so pediatric time is a really good time to be thinking about that and providing the right kinds of environment and uh, exposure to healthy lifestyle behaviors as you possibly can. Yeah, um, yeah. That's something that I haven't heard from many people, like gaining weight makes it harder to actually lose weight. So thank you for sharing that. That's very insightful. And also going back to the drugs you were talking about, um, I'm sure I'm sure you're kind of alluding or and I'm also sure you've heard of the approval of ZepBound recently, originally a diabetes treatment, now treating obesity. Um, what are your thoughts on just this recent approval in general as a nutrition researcher and, you know, an internationally recognized obesity researcher? Well, they're very exciting. These they, these are all GLP-1 drugs and they all are, mm -hmm. they're, they're nutrient-stimulated hormone therapies, which means that they're acting on the, you know, the hunger and satiety signal. And they're, you know, the, there's, you know, there's more and more coming that will be coming, you know, both small <clears throat> molecules and, um, you know, some of the things that we already are seeing. And so they're, you know, just incredibly exciting because, you know, that signaling that I was talking about before with, you know, that defended weight, when, you know, when you feel hunger and you really want to eat, I mean, you that's a hard thing to overcome. And so being able to control that is a, a really useful tool. So they're uh, in incredibly exciting. You know, uh, they're, they're much more effective than previous drugs on the market. They have been suggested in addition to um, to helping with weight loss to have in there's a one of the main trials called it's called the select trial it was on wagovi um uh, the old you know the previous glp um and and that had a 20 percent reduction in cardiovascular events in addition to weight loss and so you know we we see great improvement not just in weight in and of itself but also those associated diseases that said, it's important to recognize for all of the treatments and for all of the lifestyle modifications that there's big heterogeneity in the effects. There are susceptible individuals both to weight gain and to response to these drugs. So on average, you see amazing effects. For some people, the effects are really extreme and for other people, the effects can be more modest and there are side effects also. For some people and you know and so all of this is quite individualized once you start
start to think about actual intervention with you know just the average person in in on the street as opposed to in these clinical trials that are uh, more tightly you know tightly regulated but also in those trials always in trials those average reports get i mean average effects get reported not the tails of the distribution where you have either minimal effect or maximal effect right and um, I know you said that like all these effects are individualized. They're based on one's like individual genetic makeup and other factors. Um, one of these other factors you talked about a little bit earlier, like the environment. Could you elaborate a little bit more on um, like the key findings of like environmental changes and their implications for designing healthier communities? Yeah, so this is a very tricky area of research. And the one of the reasons it's tricky is that there's not just a single factor in your environment that affects your weight. There are many, many factors that affect your weight. Of course. And people don't live in just one environment. So they, you know, they have their residential environment. They may have a different work environment. They have to get from their home to their workplace, which cross through lots of other environments. And so it's really, really hard to study it. And most of the work focuses on the residential environment. And residential environment, once you even hone in on residential environment, that gets very complicated too, because people choose the environments they want to live in. And like for me, I chose the neighborhood that I live in because I wanted to walk my children to school. I wanted to walk to a very good market. I live near Weaver Street Market. I wanted to live, you know, walk, be able to walk to Weaver. And um, and so when, if you were to measure me in a study and you asked me, you know, do I walk to the, you know, to, to the grocery store? Or do I walk my kids to work? I'm going to say yes, but the re it's not because I live in the environment and it caused me to do that. It's because I chose to be in that environment and I'm taking advantage of that. And for some people, you put them in that environment, they're still going to drive to Weaver and they're still going to drive their kids to the um, school, even if they live in walkable distance. So all of that variability is also very challenging. So it's so I'm just saying that's a really challenging area of research. But when we look at it, you know, ideally you want people to be able to have the healthier choice, the easier choice. And so access is an incredibly big issue. Low um, uh, socioeconomic status, rural environments, a lot of those neighborhoods and, and areas that are characterized, you know, as being rural or being sometimes very urban or low SES wherever, um, the access to high quality food is lower. And so it's harder to eat healthy. And the, 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 they may even be more expensive in those neighborhoods than in, um, in other neighborhoods. And so for a lot of the population, it's it's actually more about income and access than about the, um, you know, the, you know, the, just the general characteristics of the environment. And so it's hard to tease all of this apart, but we have seen that, you know, having a, you know, a grocery store within walking distance that has fruits and vegetables does make a difference that having 
um, close proximity to um, exercise facilities makes a difference. But the differences are not that huge. So, you know, it, it's probably because of all of these other factors and the complex nature of, um, of being able to study these things. So it's complicated, but there's also studies where, you know, if you if you can have control in a confined area, like um, Washington DC is a really good example. Washington has a pretty small metro area and you can make some policy related changes in a pretty small geographic area that varies in socioeconomic status enough to be able to study. And so when you do things in places like that, you tend to see a bit more of an effect than you do in a more heterogeneous and spread out environment. Another thing that seems to make a difference that is considered environmental or policy related is, um, you know, access to sugar sweetened beverages, food, you know, some of the food labeling um, that have, has been implemented. These things also show small changes, but they do show changes. Yeah, that's great that there's like a lot of progress being made in the field. Um, I guess a follow-up question to that. I know you said a, like earlier that the healthy choice is not always the easy choice. So why is that the case normally, just in your experiences? Because um, high-calorie foods, energy-dense foods are just delicious. And it is very hard to not eat them. And, you know, the food industry knows this. And so, you know, the marketing and the availability, especially of shelf-stable food, is, um, is a pretty big factor. It's just easier to eat that way. It's, there's, you know, it's, and, and it tastes better. And when you're, when you are busy working and you've got, you know, a, full-time job and kids and all of these things, if you can get a fast food or a packaged food, that's going to, you know, take you a few minutes to prepare. It's just easier for you. And so it's harder. Um, I think that, you know, there have been some good interventions that, you know, where you work with people to show, you know, show them that actually like you can make this other meal in just as much time or, you know, really helping people to see how to how to be able to, you know, to prepare foods healthier, but, um, but, you know, it's still, it's still hard, even if you know, to, you know, that eating a certain way is going to be healthy, you know, emotions get in the way of this too. Sometimes you just want something salty and you want a fast food meal and you want, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's very hard. It's just, um, we're battling against all of that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think kind of what you're getting at was like the system itself is is the issue here, right? Like, um, especially with fast food industries, like they're really targeting people um, who don't have the time, hence, you know, the term fast food. Um, what, like, are there any intervention programs like you mentioned going on at UNC or that um, researchers in the area, I guess, are working on that you really have your eye on? Yeah, well, we have some really great researchers working here, especially with digital technologies, which is, a, you know, a really good tool in the arsenal to be able to not just um, collect data, but also to deliver intervention messaging. And, the, you know, 
kinds of, um, of interventions are really useful. We have been doing some intervention work at the university to identify susceptibility factors to try to predict who might do well on certain kinds of diets or other diets. Mm -hmm. Not to be able to predict that in a general population, which I think is very exciting. And, um, and then there's a number of community-based interventions that are happening around the state that are, I think, very effective too. So, you know, there's, there's a lot that's happening. I always have hope for the future because I always think that we're learning more and more every day about all of these ways to work with people to, um, to help them uh, to make changes. And some people don't want to make changes and, you know, that's, that's fine too. It's not like everybody needs to um, to be forced to do this, you know. So it, 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 there's there's also a degree to which people are ready to make those changes. Right. Yeah. And I guess you have a position of responsibility now as well as vice chancellor of research at UNC. So how do you plan on managing like research policies at UNC to keep promoting research and getting more individuals involved? through like large research projects and, and initiatives like you mentioned. Yeah, so so this job is is really big and broad. So, you know, there's a operational perspective of what we do, um, you know, really just making sure that we have the structures to and the infrastructure to be able to um, to to carry out the work. And um, and then, you know, um, the what, what I think is really exciting is setting the strategic priorities for research on our campus, hearing from researchers about, you know, what their interests are and how they, um, you know, what they need to, max, to be maximally effective is, I think, really important and really good. We have to do a lot with managing proposals and awards and um, identifying funding opportunities for people and um, and then you know we do a lot actually on developing research teams and partnerships both internal to the university but also with the That's external community, with stakeholders mm -hmm. with uh, neighboring institutions we do a lot of research partnership with with like NCA and T uh, NC State Duke you know several of the different universities in our um, in our state which is really exciting. And then there's a whole branch of like the regulatory compliance, science and security, ethics, yes. all of that. It's a lot. It's really big, but it's it is really exciting. And you know, in terms of our strategic priorities on campus, we're we're working hard to really do as much research as we can to have true application, true impact, true benefit to not just the citizens of the state, but also to the world. And you know trying to make our work really um, make an impact and transform lives, save lives. You know, how do we get people to think more about the impact of their work? And we're looking for um, opportunities to fund more innovative work and, um, and work that can be um, either commercialized in one way or another, making its way out of the university. And so that's a big thrust of the work that we're doing right now. Yeah, that segues great into my next question. Um, like, how do you see research evolving over the next decade or so and through your tenure at UNC? Like, you give some general ideas, but do you have any specifics? Well, I think we're, 
I, I always think we're in a, like the most exciting research time ever because there's <laughs> always development of new technologies and new methods. But like, you know, I feel like that's incredibly true right now. Like we just are, there's a lot of developments in new imaging techniques and new, um, you know, new kind, new ways of measuring the, you know, tiny little molecules that, um, that are signals of disease. There's tons of new data science and, you know, rapid, rapidly evolving AI and um, digital technology and all of these things that when you put them together can really boost the kind of work that you can do because you take like a, you know, you, you take like somebody who is doing genetics work and all of a sudden you're able to like crunch those numbers faster than you've ever been able to and identify patterns in the data really, really fast. And the same is true for the imaging data. Imaging data, you know, is huge volume of data and, um, and to be able to really get in there try to pull out the patterns and, and create, you know, better linkages to disease-related outcomes. So I think that, that those combinations are really, really cool. And the more that we can do to bring these diverse teams of people together to be able to think about that better. The, the other area is, you know, I mentioned before, the application and impact. And what we've been doing in our office is really looking very hard at our engineering footprint across the university because when we looked we have a hundred over 170 faculty who are working in engineering and or have advanced degrees in engineering on our campus so we are the size of a small school of engineering on our campus but <laughs> we don't have a school of engineering but we do have all of these researchers who really have the skills related to application. And so how do we better channel the work of those applied researchers with biomedical, social, you know, all the different kinds of science that we have on our campus to be able to really um, boost the impact of the work and the application of the work that we're doing across campus. Oh yeah, um, as, as a biomedical engineering major myself, I feel really passionate about like, um, yeah, sure, we have BME labs on campus, but it's also so important to incorporate BME into other, other fields of research. Like uh, I work in a neuro, neuroscience lab and like I've been trying to convince my PI to let me do like a BME project for a while. So um, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it's, it's really cool that you bring that up. Yeah, I think um, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I guess kind of transitioning to the public health side. Um, from your perspective, how can research findings from nutrition research be effectively translated into public health policies that have you know meaningful impact on population health and not just like, um, like you'll hear a lot about um, policies that are being implemented in schools and stuff, but like you never really see any any changes happen really often. Like, uh, I remember they, they got rid of the food pyramid right, right. a few years ago, uh, and it, it was like my plate now, um, which is crazy, because we grew up with like the food pyramid and everything. Um, so, and I, I feel like it has made an impact, but like how, how do you think it's, it's going to happen in the future and like how it's happening right now? 
Yeah, well, food policy is really hard because food policy gets tied into agriculture and, and you know special interests and political issues and all of these things. So it's a, it's a tough, tough area. And it's also, just like obesity, incredibly complicated. And most of the research is dealing with average effects on populations. And there's always this variability. And so the effects of any given study are usually more towards the null than anything because you've got the super right. responders and the low responders. And so it's hard to sort through that evidence to know what to use to guide policy. And so, you know, FDA and, you know, policymakers struggle with this because it's, it's not like, you know, smoking or some of these other things that have more of a of a, it's not like smoking is black white either, but more of a black white, more of a strong impact than um, than than some of the diet re and nutrition research. It's just really really complicated, and so you know the more interventions we do and the more data we collect and analyze, the better, especially on populations. There are a lot of underrepresented populations in the literature, and so it's you know it's. You can't do much just if you're studying, you know, uh, white American populations. And so there's a there's a ton of work that needs to happen. And there's, you know, there's a number of big studies that the federal government is funding now. All of Us is one. I don't know if you've heard of All of Us. Have you heard of that? It's basically open to all people. And what you do is you just take your, um, your phone and you you enter data into it and it goes into the cloud and gets entered into, you know, this all of us database, the medical record data can come in there and it's representing, you know, hopefully millions of Americans. And so we have a lot of, you know, we'll have a lot of data on more people to be able to answer some of these questions. Diet is one of the hardest things to measure. You know, you think about the things that you eat in a given day and um, you have to record all of that and um, all of the ingredients and all of the um, condiments and everything that goes into a meal. So diet is just very, very hard. <laughs> so, but, we, yeah. but we're getting there and there's more, you know, we actually on our campus have a big study called Nutrition for Precision Health where we're working to identify some of the more um, personalized nutrition or susceptibility factors. And we actually do a lot of that work on our campus. That's going to be a way in, I think, to be able to fully understand the impact of diet on an individual level, as opposed to a population level. On the population level, it's very, very hard. Yeah. And the policies, I are, policies are all on population level. So yeah. it's hard. Yeah. yeah. So when you're on this population level, like getting data from millions and millions of people, how do you ensure that like people's privacy is maintained? There's definitely a pop, uh, excuse me, possibility of like a HIPAA violation or, you know. Yeah, there are mechanisms that they're putting into place. That's a big part of what the All of Us program and Nutrition for Precision Health both of those programs, they, you know, they when they funded them, they funded an AI center, and uh, you know, it, as part of that, so that there these protections would be built into the system. 
So they are definitely making a priority for that, for sure. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I guess I had a question about students. Like Chimbe, of course, here is a great BME student trying to pursue BME even through a neuroscience lab.、Um, for students trying to pursue like a career in nutrition, what advice would you give them? Are there specific skills or experiences that you believe are crucial for success in the field? So,、um, you know, I, I mean, first to say,、uh, on our campus, I think a lot of people talk about like the academics and the research is separate. But I think, and you probably would agree with me, that as you're going through college, like your experience is your experience, your research is part of you know the courses you take. You're learning about the research from the professor who does the research. You're doing research in labs, so it's all really. You know, it's all part and parcel of that. I think for nutrition、um, and really, you know, anything in the health space, as far as I'm concerned, probably even more, the best thing to do is to learn how to do statistical programming and analysis.、Not、Because、sure. once you learn how to, you know, analysis is going to be core to everything, and、um, to, for the health field, data analysis. Going to be a really core piece of that, and so learning those skills means that you can start y- your, you know, research career, you know, already ahead of the game. So you can already be able to analyze data. You can already actually be able to understand how to test differences in, you know, the kinds of data that you have. So I think that's really important. I think creativity is a huge. Marker of, of success, no matter what you do, you know, being able to think,、um, you know, why is this like this, or why, you know, and then I think for anything that you go into, just figuring out what it is that really excites you. So my department, nutrition, you know, there are very few people in my department, faculty members, who are trained in nutrition. So most of us are trained in a different field from nutrition. We just happen to work in nutrition. So、um, you know, nutrition is a very, very big and broad field, and so a lot of things can be actually part of nutrition. So the more curious somebody is about just about anything that has a nutrition-related exposure,、um, it, you know, it can fit in the nutrition department and can do well in you know with. Getting the experience of、um, of the you know data analysis and so forth, I think for things that have a biological mechanism or underpinning, it's good to start learning about the mechanisms of disease and you know nutritional biochemistry is a big part of nutrition, and so understanding that so you can understand the pathways to disease are really important. But that's all on the health side. Like I think for being a researcher. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more data as part of humanities, even, and so you know that can be important in humanities. But if you're thinking about doing something like humanities or、um, or you know some other field, art or something, just getting the exposure to that, whatever it is, the methods that underlie it,、um, the better. So、um, you know, and, and just being curious, like you guys are, to ask these kinds of questions <laughs> is a bit, you know. <laughs> It just shows, like, you need to have the curious mind to be able to, you know, to think about science. <laughs> Thank you.、Um, I d- I did have a question, more about like the data science side. Like, 
I'm not too familiar with the nutrition like requirements for the major or even for the grad school, but it, are like the store classes, like the statistics and operations research classes, like um, are they a requirement already? And if not, like, do you think they should like, do you think it will be implementing policies that, that they will be in the future? Yeah, so that's, a, that's actually a really good question because um, you know, our requirements are more on the nutrition side. We, you do have to have um, some, you know, basic analysis kinds of skills to uh, to apply. But you can you can apply without having a lot of data analysis skills. It's just uh, you know a bit of a harder hill to uh, to climb. We. Um, a lot of the students that come into, like my part of nutrition is nutrition epidemiology. And so a lot of my students, almost all of my students take a minor in epidemiology. And in order to get admitted into the epi minor, you need to have some staff, you know, in order to, to be able to qualify. And then we actually, for the epi minor, um, the epidemiology department has a requirement that like a stats programming requirement that is actually mm -hmm. class, but it's like a test. <laughs> so they give you this mm -hmm. test and ask you basically to program something and then you turn it in and they assess whether or not that you have the ability to program. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you probably, I don't know if you know or not, but like, you know, for a lot of people, they may not have taken a formal class in it, but they mm -hmm. picked it up one way or another. And so having yeah. the may not actually like you can you may be a better programmer without the requirement than somebody who has the requirement so it's, it's like, more when i interview students it's more about the aptitude like do i you know do do i think they're going to be able to become a good programmer if they're not already yeah so is it r or python or in the the exam used to be in SAS or Stata, but I think now it's more R. We mostly program in R, Python, depending on what you what kind of um, work you're doing. But R is probably mm. the most common. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, I I don't have any more questions from maybe you. No, I think we're good. Yeah. This is Dr. Penny Gordon Larson, um, UNC's very own Vice Chancellor of Research. Uh, thank you so much for your perspectives. This has been really insightful, really helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much to, for just taking the time out of your day and talking to us. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> thank you. And to the listeners, as always, stay, stay curious. curious. Thanks. <laughs>